Good morning, my sweetheart church. Good to have the kiddos down here in the bullpen. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for all of you joining us for worship today. I want to show you a picture. This is my granddaughter, Cece. I actually call her Shushu. Her mama is Brazilian, and Shushu is a slang Portuguese term for a certain kind of squash. But it also means cutie in Portuguese. So Shushu is my, my cutie, and we're fishing on Ansich uh, Dock, which by fishing means there's the fish, the plastic pink thing, and we drop that down into the water, and she squeals every time, and then she brings it back in, crying out, reel it in, reel it in, and, and then we do it a thousand more times in a row. That's, that's her idea of fishing. And I realized unabashedly that Shushu makes her way into my sermons rather frequently, and you might as well get used to it. Because family is the most important thing in the world to me, and I've discovered that grandparenting is one of the greatest illustrations of God's love toward us. It's the great reset in life. It's just the best. And of course, all the grandparents are out there nodding their heads with me. It's wonderful, which makes this morning's passage so very challenging. And that's saying a lot, actually, because over the last many weeks, we've been in some of the toughest teachings of Jesus. They, it has all been challenging, hasn't it? Uh, as Jesus is drawing closer to Jerusalem, as the shadow of the cross falls over him, you sense an increased urgency and an increased passion in his preaching. There is no bait and switch, Jesus. No pretty front, uh, front window and then come on in and, and discover what the real thing is. There's no soft peddling of what it means to be his followers. He, he is telling us the hard truth here. He says, I'm going to bring division to families. He said, I am the only door, and it's a narrow door, to get into heaven. He tells us that if you want to follow me, you've got to turn around. You've got to repent and walk in the other direction. Last week, we heard him say, I don't need any more religious dabblers. I need disciples who are sold out. And this morning, we're going to discover just how great is the cost of that discipleship in a really challenging passage of Scripture. Professor Jim Edwards describes this passage as, quote, the most demanding charge on discipleship to be found in Luke's gospel. That's saying a lot. So buckle up your pew belts and turn with me to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and following, for this strong word from Jesus. Luke 14, verse 25. You might keep your Bible or your app open. We'll be looking at it throughout the message. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them. So he's got these huge crowds following him. He turns around and he looks at them, and what he's about to say is what he says to those adoring crowds. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brother and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war 
will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. An article in the Wall Street Journal appeared last week that was titled, Why Gen Xers Aren't Going Back to Church. And it described the fall-off in church attendance post-COVID, especially among Gen Xers. The article calls it quiet quitting. These people who for years, for all of their life perhaps, have been faithfully involved, faithfully worshiping, faithfully serving, faithfully active, are just fading away, quietly quitting. And of course, this is a nationwide issue, and many churches, including our own, have been, have been employing a number of tactics to try to reverse this trend, to encourage and entice and welcome people back to church in person. The question that has been on every pastor's mind for these last three years or so is the same question. How can I get my people back? How can we grow the church again? So there's been greater use of, of virtual media. There have been carefully crafted sermon series. There have been seminars on marriage and parenting and grandparenting and finance and, and mental health. Lots of churches are trying lots of things to make church more attractive and, and Christianity more appealing. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, he seems to have the opposite strategy. He has huge crowds following him, and it's as if he is thinking, what can I say that will thin these crowds out, that will make them turn tail and run? What can I say that will drive these people away? We have a class called Chapel Hill 101. It's designed for the potential members to our church. It's really designed to introduce us to them and, frankly, to entice them to want to join our family. Well, this passage is Jesus' version of Discipleship 101, and He isn't enticing anyone. He is almost daring them to run away. And He makes three assertions about what it means to follow Him, and if that is too great a price to pay for someone, He ends with the same hard punchline, He cannot be my disciple. You can't do this, you cannot be my disciple. So I wonder, are you tough enough to hear the hard words of Jesus this day? Because we need to buckle in. Here we go. The three, here are the three demands. We must love Jesus supremely. We must follow Jesus unquestionably. And we must relinquish all to Jesus sacrificially. If you don't love me supremely, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't follow me unquestionably, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't relinquish all that you have sacrificially, you cannot be my disciple. Let's take a closer look at these three demanding demands. First of all, you must love me supremely, Jesus says. We find that in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a shocking thing to hear, isn't it? Come on, admit it. That is a shocking thing to hear from the Lord. I find it shocking. I love my mom and dad. Uh, they've been great and godly parents. I spent the last few months 
working with my sister, whom I also love to help them sell their home and relocate them into a place that will be better suited. And it was exhausting, and it was emotional, wasn't it? And, and I was privileged to do it because I loved them. I know they would do anything for me. I love my wife. She's my greatest champion, my dearest friend. I would do anything for her as I know she would for me. My children are the treasures of my life. And need I say any more about Shushu? I don't think so. So is Jesus really telling me that I must hate these people in order to be able to follow him? What a horrible choice. And doesn't that conflict with everything else that the Bible seems to say about honoring our parents and treasuring our marriage and loving and, and nurturing and blessing our children? Well, as is so often the case, we need to understand this word in its original historical context. For us, the word hate means malice or scorn or contempt, right? We know what hate means. It means loathing. This is a Jewish crowd that was listening to Jesus, and they understood this word to mean something different. It was a Semitic turn. It was a turn of phrase used among the Semitic people, the Jews, that means to love less than. If you said to a Jew, hate, it, in this context, it means to love less than. That's something of a relief, isn't it? And Matthew's version of the same teaching actually sands off some of the rough corners of this. It makes it a little more palatable because Matthew puts it this way. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now that is the meaning of hate here. It's still a very demanding standard, but at least it helps us understand what Jesus is saying. Because after all, Jesus is the one who said, love one another, right? He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He told us even to love our enemies. And in the Roman culture, where women were simply the property of their husbands, and where children could be killed by their fathers if he was displeased by them, with no consequence, literally, in such a world, it was the Christian standard of love and caring in a family that was so utterly countercultural and captured the heart of the world. Of course we're supposed to love our family, but Jesus is saying, as much as you love those dearest to you, you must love me more if you're going to be my disciple. That's first. Here's the second. Follow me unquestionably. Follow me unquestionably. Here's verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I have read this a zillion times. I've preached on it a number of times. But I suddenly came, something came to my mind this week that I had never even thought of before. Jesus is talking about the cross here. He hasn't gone to the cross. Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. No one in that crowd would have made any sense of this weird and shocking illusion to bearing your cross and following me because Christ is yet, yet, not yet born his cross and, and, and told us to follow him. I don't think anyone would have gotten it. C crucifixion, it was perhaps the cruelest method of execution ever, ever invented. You drive spikes through the wrist bones, be between your wrist bones, and you drive them into the heel of your feet and you were lifted up on a cross and it was a cruel and long death by asphyxiation. 
your diaphragm, which allows you to breathe, ultimately would become paralyzed. And so the only way to capture a breath was to pull yourself up on the nails through your wrists and grab a breath and then sag back down in exhaustion and pain. And that would go on for hours and hours up and down until finally you did not have the strength and the person would die. The, the cross was intended to be terrifying. Romans wanted to intimidate every troublemaker. The roads lining many of the major streets going into the town, would, you would find criminals hanging on crosses as a brutal and constant reminder of Rome's ruthlessness. No one would have chosen crucifixion as the way to die. And Jesus says shockingly to these people, this crowd, you must be willing to bear your cross or you cannot follow me. You must be willing to take up this instrument of torture and follow me. And amazingly, after I came to that realization, I realized this isn't the first time Jesus has used the image of the cross in Luke's gospel. Way back in chapter 9, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Only Luke adds daily. Only Luke. I love that. Daily. So at a minimum, if it doesn't mean execution, at a minimum, taking up your cross means that you've got to die to your self-will. You've got to learn to deny yourself, to say no to you, no to your preferences, no to your habits, no to your wasteful spending, no to your own plans. You need to submit yourself entirely to the Lordship of Christ every day, saying no to you and yes to Jesus every single day. We must re-crucify our own stubborn will every day, and say, Lord, I deny myself, I say no to me, and instead I choose to follow you. Wherever you lead, however difficult, I will trust you, and I will go there without question. You must love Jesus supremely. You must follow him unquestionably. He goes on, he says, following Jesus is costly. It shouldn't be entered into in haste. It shouldn't be a, a quick, rash decision that you make. He said, you need to consider carefully whether or not you want to follow me. Like a man who builds a tower. No man would invest in building a great watchtower on his property without first making sure the plans were right and that he had enough money to finish the job. Otherwise, in that shame culture, they would just humiliate you for your stupid planning. We have, a, I think, one of the most wonderful tributes to Poor planning that is visible. If you're driving over to Aberdeen and you look up on the hillside, you'll see this. Anyone remember seeing this as you drive by? There's actually two of them. This nuclear plant was so poorly planned and constructed that it over, its overruns bankrupted the company and it left billions of dollars. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the bondholders lost billions of dollars in value. It was the largest at that time, the largest loss in bond holdings in, ever in, the, in this United States. The project was never completed, and it had a classic nickname. You remember the nickname? Whoops. Whoops. An uh, unfortunate un, un, play on the name of the company, which was Washington Public Power Supply System. Whoops. Whoops. We didn't plan that very carefully. Every time you drive to Aberdeen, you say, whoops. The other illustration Jesus uses is even more precious because it's talking about human life. He said, what king marches his outmatched army into war if he knows that slaughter is inevitable and victory impossible? It's too costly. And so he decides he will sue for peace. 
We pastors especially, we tend to soft pedal the hard things about being a Christian because we want to make it more attractive. We want to more draw more people in, not Jesus. Jesus says, don't you jump into following me. Don't you be rash in your decision. Don't be hasty. You sit down and you count the cost because it is the long game I'm calling you to. Before you make up your mind, consider the cost. Any one of you, he says, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Love me supremely. Follow me unquestionably. Relinquish all to me sacrificially. This is what it means to be a disciple according to Jesus. I wonder if any of you have ever heard the term easy believism. Easy believism. It's, it was a, it's a derogatory term that was used to describe those who think that being a Christian is simply saying a quick prayer and then just going on with your life as usual. No change. Well, the discipleship Jesus describes here is anything but easy believism, isn't it? It's costly. It demands our all. See how many historians we have here. I want to show you a picture. Tell me who this man is. Anyone know? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a soft-spoken German Lutheran pastor who stood up against the Nazis. From the earliest moments of Hitler's regime, Bonhoeffer spoke out against him. In fact, the second day after Hitler was installed, he went on radio, spoke to the whole nation about the evils of the Reich, and it was pulled off mid-broadcast. And that was the beginning of the troubles he would have. He ended up even joining in an assassination attempt against Hitler because he believed that the sin of murder was, was, uh, was outweighed by the monstrous sin of Germany's false messiah. Bonhoeffer was eventually captured at the age of 39, taken to Flossenburg concentration camp, and one week before the war ended, two days before Flossenburg was liberated, Bonhoeffer was executed, hung by his neck from a piano wire. One of Bonhoeffer's most important books was called The Cost of Discipleship, and in it, Contains, is contained perhaps the most famous words in that book. It says, Bonhoeffer writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He had no idea what his future held. It was prophetic, wasn't it? When Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, when Christ calls a young person, he bids them come and die. The demands of Jesus are costly. What does it mean to love Jesus more than the most precious people in the world to me? What does it mean to follow Jesus unquestionably wherever he might lead me? What does it mean to be ready to relinquish all of my belongings to Jesus sacrificially? I'll be frank with you. This feels overwhelming to me at times. I haven't even known how to process this completely. I adore my family. I would lay down my life for them. Cindy's the most important person in the world to me. For me to to put my love of Jesus over her, I don't exactly know what that would look like. I feel like I love Jesus by loving my wife well. I feel like I honor Jesus by honoring the vows that I took before Jesus with her. But if Cindy, Jesus is saying, if Cindy or any of my family members ever displaces Jesus as the most important person in my life, that is idolatry. And it is a failure of my discipleship, he says. 
What does it mean to take up my cross daily and, and follow Jesus? Most of us will never face execution, but every day we have opportunities to either stand for Christ in the face of contempt or scorn or, or mockery, or we can cower and cave and deny Him. The call of Jesus upon me is to deny myself, is to say no to me every single day in order to say yes to Him. When I make my comfort or my reputation or my plans a priority over my witness for Christ, that is idolatry, Jesus says, and it is a failure of my discipleship. What does it mean to relinquish all my possessions to the Lord? Didn't He give them to me? Didn't He bless them? With, bless me with them? Aren't, aren't I to enjoy those things? Yes, but when I trust my money more than Jesus, when I trust my IRAs more than Jesus, when I hoard my wealth instead of giving, when I refuse to tithe because my spending on myself is out of control, that is idolatry. And it is a failure of my discipleship, says Jesus. Love Jesus supremely. Follow Him unquestionably. Relinquish all that you have sacrificially. That's a hard word, isn't it? Here's the good news that goes along with that hard word. When we belong to Christ, when His Spirit lives in us, it is He who is doing this work of discipleship formation in us. It is not me gritting my teeth and trying harder. It is the Spirit of Christ who lives within me that is beginning to do this work, to transform me. The Apostle Paul calls it being changed from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3, I love that. One degree of glory to another. Bit by bit, little by little. That's how the Holy Spirit changes me. He that bit by bit, the, Jesus helps me to love Him more. Bit by bit, the Holy Spirit helps me to trust Him more, even in frightening places. Bit by bit, the Holy Spirit helps me to release my death grip on my possessions that I might dis- re- be reminded again of His gracious provision and all that I need is given in Christ. Bit by bit, a little by little, one degree of glory to the next. So if you're here sitting here thinking, how can I possibly do this? I'm not there yet. You're right, you're not, and neither am I. And you will not be there completely until the Lord says, okay, now you're ready to come home. But if you listen to these hard words from Jesus, if you pay attention to the prompting of the Spirit inside of you, and probably in one particular area, and if you are willing to say, Lord, I submit, I give that again to you, then He will continue to do His work of changing you into the person you were created to be, the disciple you want to be, the disciple that Jesus demands you to be. One of my life group brothers was on vacation, and we check in, even when we're on vacation, we'll zoom in because we love our group so much, and he wrote these words after he'd reflected on this passage that we were studying together. He said, I'm sitting here contemplating the cost of following Christ. This text is challenging. Love Christ more than my family? Wow. Consider following Christ with the same weight as building a house or going to war against a superior enemy. My takeaway, he goes on, is I don't regularly associate this level of gravitas, of seriousness, with being a Christian. I must be all in, especially as I'm coming to communion. I must be all in as I repent before receiving communion. I need to approach the communion table with every chip on the table. Nothing in reserve. So that's what we're going to do right now. This will be another bit by bit 
one degree of glory to another moment as we come and partake together of the Lord's Supper. This is a reminder of the costly sacrifice of Jesus, for He doesn't ask us anything to, to do anything that He did not Himself first do. And I find Daryl's words here really powerful. I need to approach the communion table with every chip on the table, nothing in reserve. And so I invite you to come to this meal, this reminder that Jesus held nothing back, nothing in reserve in order to save us and empower us to become the disciples that he deserves. If you want to be that kind of disciple, if you are ready to repent anew and turn your life again over to the Lord completely, if, or if you've never, never even responded to Jesus, but this is the day you say you are strangely compelled by this bold invitation of Christ, you can come up and take this meal and it would be your first act as a follower of Jesus. Let this be your confession of faith as you take communion for the first time. All of you are welcome. Those who feel solid, those who feel shaky, those who don't even know that they're yet part of the Lord, you're all welcome. If you want to follow Jesus, this is his table. It is the feast of God for the people of God. Lord Jesus, we bow before these hard words. We submit our lives to them. It is very challenging to hear this, and we don't understand it completely, but it is clear what you are saying is, I am the priority. I am your Lord. I am number one in your life. And if you will do that, all of these things will be added to it as well. That's what you promised. And so, Lord, on this day, when we come to the reminder of all that you were willing to pay for our salvation, I pray that you bring to mind those things that we are holding back, the chips that we are holding to ourselves. I pray that we would have the courage to push it all in, to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to following, obeying, loving, and serving, and giving to you. We ask all of this in your matchless name. Amen. You've heard these words many times. Listen to them as if you'd never heard them before. Paul writes, I received from the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that which I gave to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is about to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And now we, ministering on behalf of Jesus, offer to you bread and juice that they might be for you the body and blood of Christ, and that in the partaking of them you might find nourishment for your soul. Holy God, we ask that you would set aside these very common elements, just bread, simple bread and juice. Would you set them aside for this sacred and holy purpose? As we share in this, would you remind us of the great cost that your son paid to save us? And would you remind us of the, the cost to be your disciple, to follow you in the way that you intend? As we eat this, may our souls be strengthened, may our courage be buoyed that we might be bold and brave 
and faithful disciples of Jesus. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us and grant us your peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
In that same book that Bonhoeffer wrote, he talked about cheap grace. Cheap grace, grace that comes easy to us. We don't think anything of it. We just take advantage of it. And he said, grace is not cheap. It's costly. The cost of discipleship is our lives. When we hear these things, I'll bet one of them jumps out at you. When we hear that we need to love Christ supremely, maybe you say, I, I don't love the Lord like I should. Maybe when we say following Christ unquestionably, maybe we say, I don't obey the Lord like I should. We're relinquishing all sacrificially. Maybe we're not generous as he calls us to be. And to take all those things on at once would be overwhelming. Aren't you glad for Paul's words bit by bit, one degree of glory to another? So the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and said, this is the part I want to work on. This is the bit I want to work on in your life. And you need to decide, will I submit to that? Will I put that chip on the table? Will I push that part of my life in and allow the Lord to continue to draw me into a deeper relationship as his disciple? I hope you will. Your life will never be the same if you will. Well, this has been a, a series of weeks of, in some challenging teaching, hasn't it? These are not easy words. I'm glad we've done them. That's why we preach the entire Bible, because some of the parts are harder to take, but we need to hear that part of God's Word, too. But I'm really excited for two things in this coming week. First of all, I'm excited 
for Tuesday night when we're going to be able to share all that the Lord has done in the last week, in the last year. So I invite you to come, be there, be there early, get your pie, and let's celebrate God's faithfulness. And then the other thing I'm excited about is starting next Sunday, after this kind of hard slog, we come to what I consider to be one of the sweetest chapters in the whole Bible. And we're all going to, we're going to take a collective, oh, isn't that good? I can't wait to preach on it. I hope you can't wait to hear it. Let's raise our hands up and receive a blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.